Chapter Three of Ruffles and Danny, or the Responsibility of Ruffles, by Marjorie Watson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Letter from Mary Frost to Her Mother, Salem, Massachusetts, twenty May, nineteen ten. Dearest Mother, your very humble and unassuming daughter salutes you. In case the meekness of my opening sentence requires accounting for. Let me tell you at once that on Thursday last, a good old-fashioned northeaster being rampant, I decided to brave the elephants and make a circuit of calls on some of the very dear friends of your youth, as I should be quite reasonably sure of finding them at home. Everywhere I received a most cordial welcome, but came away in each case with the impression deeply stamped on my mind that the consensus of opinion simmered and boiled down. Might be expressed after this fashion: You are very charming, my dear, but you can never hope to be as beautiful as your mother. I counselled myself on the home stretch, bracing my umbrella against the buffets of wind and rain, to the effect that the next time I have occasion to call on mother's friends, where comparisons are probable, I would better choose some sunny day and don my best bib and tucker. Dear heart, when I call to mind the fact that my delightful visit is almost at an end, don't for one minute imagine that the corners of my mouth are down or my handkerchief damp. For happy as it has been, I shall be still more happy to get back to you and dear old Dad and Puck and Peter Pan and the garden and all the friends. I shall leave on the one thirty from Boston. Please tell Jock Tuttle I shall need his help for several days next week, as I've laid in a stock of seed, shrubs, and other things for the garden. Apropos of the getting of these supplies, just listen, and I will tell you of the day I spent down in the old Faneuil Hall marketplace in Boston. Who do you suppose went with me and devoted a whole day to my service, playing porter, general adviser, landscape gardener, and mentor all in one? A descendant of the great Daniel Hawthorne, he's a specimen of what Harvard can do when it tries. Type of young manhood, he also is of literary turn of mind. Says he intends writing a novel this summer and declares most emphatically and convincingly that the heroine shall trip through the pages in my semblance. That therefore it will be necessary to study me from all points of view. To which end he means to come down on the Cape and spend at least five minutes each day in taking pen snapshots of my personality. Now, from what I have seen of Mister Richard Huntington, I do not anticipate appearing in the character of a second Miriam, neither as Hilda nor yet as Hepzibah, but more likely as the star part in a play called "How the Sea Nymph Became Stranded on Monomoy." Or some such imaginative, unheard of, full of possibilities title as that. I really think he is serious about spending the summer in our vicinity, however, as he knows the Stirlings and has heard much about our summer colony. The most interesting incident of our day occurred just before lunch, when we were fortunate in witnessing a most entertaining little drama which was performed in the South Station. The stage setting was realistic. The acting true, in spite of the fact that there had been no reading and rehearsing of the parts, but this is how it happened, and I am still at a loss to explain the why and the wherefore. 
we were strolling along Summer Street in search of a certain hardware store, when we overheard someone say that General T. was leaving on a special at 115. I stopped short and looked a question at Mr. Huntington. Sure thing, said he. Let's have a look at the lion. After the knocks he's been getting lately, if he roars at all, he will roar us as gently as a sucking dove. So off we hastened to the station, which was but a block away. The crowd was pretty dense. However, thanks to Mr. Huntington's tact, quick wit, and football training, we managed to attain a good position. As we were a little ahead of time, we amused ourselves by watching the people. My attention was immediately drawn to a party of three. Indeed, no one could have seen those three without turning for a second glance. A charming girl of about eighteen, with such wonderful coloring, it made me ache for the power of an artist to reproduce it in such enduring colors that the work might go on down the ages to come, delighting future generations as it charmed me. She was of medium height, slender, but firmly built, rather short black hair, just long enough to tie at the nape of the neck with a big bow and then curl bewitchingly up with stray, tenderly locks about the ears and temples. Deep, deep blue eyes shadowed by long, black lashes, with traces of the traditional smutty finger. The color of her skin was riotous, rich brown shading to delicate pink. There was a sparkle in the whole expression of her, she wore a tailored dark blue suit with tan trimmings, a Panama hat rolled back from the face, bound with a scarf shading from blues to buff. She looked like a girl who might have lived in the saddle, and it's my impression she must have been a westerner. Holding her hand was a little chap of about five, as great a contrast to herself in looks as possible. He had a rather serious little face, oval in shape, Sir Joshua Reynolds' type, with big brown eyes and short, very golden curls. Standing just back of the two was a tall, handsome colored girl dressed simply in black. I was so absorbed that I failed to notice a stir in the crowd, and the great man had almost boarded the train before Mr. Huntington, noticing my abstraction, touched me on the shoulder with a nod in the direction of the general's approach. Someone in the crowd waved a hat and cried, Three cheers for a man! Others caught the enthusiasm, and the multitude surged and cheered. Then my spinal column got thrilly, same sensation that the combination of a military band and the American flag floating to the breeze always creates, you know, and silly and ridiculous as it certainly was, the tears stood in my eyes what it is to be emotional. But then, I was thinking what a pity it was that this strong, virile, purposeful leader of men should have had his head turned. However, I for one am not ready to believe that he has lost his equipoise, although he may wobble a bit now and then. When the cheering subsided, I heard a clear, childish voice calling, "'Wait! Oh, wait! I wants to speak with you!' The little curly-headed boy had slipped through an opening in the crowd, too small for his sister, or so I suppose her to be, to follow. His hat was pushed off, and the crowd seemed to part involuntarily to make way for his onward rush. Someone lifted him up, and with his arms outstretched towards the general, 
Again his clear, high soprano voice called eagerly, I wants to speak with you. They passed him along from man to man. The general had turned on the platform, greatly interested, and stood waiting till he could reach out and take the little chap in his arms. A hush fell over the crowd, breathless with interest. Very gently, and with a loving smile, the man of affairs greeted the boy. Now, my little fellow, what can I do for you? Timidly, one dimpled hand stroked the square chin, and with the soft curves of his baby face close to the strong and determined lines on the face of the man, he breathed a satisfied little sigh. Oh, I'm so glad! I did want to talk with you. You see, my very dear father is feeling sorry about you. He says he's so afraid you're going to do something to spoint all the peoples what's been loving you so hard. But, and he cocked his little head to one side, all the time gazing into the eyes of the man, and the dearest, sunniest smile flashed over his serious baby face. I don't think he needs to worry. I'll tell him I likes you, and I guess the men's and people's will go right on liking you. You, you, want some too, don't you? It's rather nice to have people's love you, if— And he evidently decided to qualify his statement, judging from his own past experience, if they don't bother by kissing you too much. The general's face was a study. He looked as though he would like to make a speech to answer the people whose thoughts were reflected in the voice of the child, but there was no time, so he merely said, Yes, I quite agree with you. Will you tell me your name? The child straightened his back and raised his head with a proud gesture, carrying his hand to the place where his hat should be in a military salute. Danny Ross Sanderson. And where is your father? asked the general. Then the brown eyes looked round, rather startled. Haltingly, he said, Father went out for a little while. I guess I'd better be going back to Ruffles. That's what it sounded like. Where is she? I was just on the point of sending Mr. Huntington to the rescue when I saw that the tall, colored girl was forcing her way through the crowd and had nearly reached the steps. Oh, here's Dewey! the boy exclaimed in a relieved tone. Goodbye, Mr. Mr. I can't say your name, but it's it's all right, isn't it? Yes, Danny, it's quite all right, I believe. Then the boy in apologetic fashion said, You may kiss me if you wants to. Now that's very kind of you, said the general, and I appreciate it, but being gentlemen, we'll shake hands instead. They gravely went through the ceremony, just as an official called, Board! Passing the boy to the arms of the colored girl, the general lifted his hat with a gesture of reverence, and a long, loving look at that darling baby face. The crowd cheered louder than ever. The train started, the general still on the platform with his hat raised, and the boy with one arm tight around the neck of the colored girl waved his other hand till the train was out of sight. I had looked several times to see how the charming girl was taking all this. She appeared intensely amused, and many and varied were the expressions which mirrored her thoughts and rippled one after another across her features, 
but not once did I get an impression of any idea of fear or worry. She seemed to be accepting the child's act from his own point of view, waiting quietly till the crowd should disperse, and she could once more get hold of the slippery little political adviser. While she was waiting, for the crowd thinned out rather slowly, a distinguished-looking gentleman joined her with an anxious look of inquiry. The girl nodded with a bubbling laugh in the direction of the boy, and evidently, for I was not near enough to catch the conversation, began an animated recital of the events of the past ten minutes. Mr. Huntington gave expression to his sentiments by a prolonged whistle, and, turning to me, said with a long breath, "'My word, Miss Frost, what do you know about that?' Now that, my dear unsophisticated parents, is slang, and serves as an exclamation point in modern conversation. "'I know I wish I could claim acquaintance with those people,' I replied. "'Who do you suppose they are?' Oh, I say, can't you think of some way we could manage to be of service to them, you know? Why under the canopy didn't I forestall that colored girl and get to the boy first? groaned Mr. Huntington. But by this time they had disappeared into the waiting room, and we couldn't very well follow them. So, with sighs of resignation, we decided to go and get lunch. The Sandman is getting persistent. I must leave the rest of the news till I see you on Saturday. Good night, dear father and mother. Your loving daughter, Mary. Neither the general, nor Mary, nor any of the witnesses to the above incident could know how many times Danny had stood by his father's knee listening to the conversation of the men in the smoking car and grasping with a child's quick instinct that all was not well with the man he had been taught to revere. There was so little to be done by a small boy on a long railway trip in the way of amusement, and so he had thought long, and for a small boy, seriously, of the scraps of conversation he had caught. End of chapter 3